Could a civil uprising unseat an illegitimate government in the U.S.? Two things. A Biden presidency, an Obama presidency, a George W. Bush presidency, a Ronald Reagan presidency, all are illegitimate. Bill Clinton presidency? Illegitimate. Second thing. Yes, absolutely, a civil uprising could unseat any government, and that's what our plutocrat friends upstairs are afraid of. So don't let anyone ever tell you that it's unlikely or impossible. Any government can be overthrown with a concerted effort. So here's a possibly timely article by David Dennis Jr. Could a civil uprising unseat an illegitimate government in the U.S.? Let's say the nightmare scenario happens, what options do citizens have? It's revealing that his photo portrays an illegitimate Trump presidency rather than an illegitimate Biden presidency. I, for one, would be just as happy to overthrow a Biden presidency as a Trump presidency. Mostly because a Biden presidency, as would have been a Hillary presidency, is a lot sneakier about it. It's fascism either way, and we have a racist rapist in the White House either way. So let's get cracking. There's been a lot of talk recently about the idea of Election Day giving way to election season, that record-breaking early voting numbers have permanently shifted the way we think about the process. That may be, but Election Day this year matters for a very specific reason. We're less than a week away, or less than a day away, from the most volatile political moment America has seen since the Civil War. I mean that literally. There's a greater than zero chance greater than zero chance, that democracy itself crumbles under an autocratic regime takeover. That, after 242 years, a certain someone is either going to steal the election or simply decide they're not going anywhere. But dear viewers and listeners, we've already pretty much debunked that scenario because he doesn't have any support from the generals. The possibility of a government that somehow becomes even more draconian and repressive than what we've lived under for the past four years is more than just unsettling. It's enough of a threat to have everyday citizens wondering what resistance will look like. This is me breaking in again. We should include how draconian and repressive the Obama presidency was. And of course the George W. Bush presidency and on back. And while we're at it, let's just go back 40-plus years in a continuous stream of neoliberalism. Back in again? We've all heard theories about nonviolent grassroots uprisings and what they could do to an illegitimate government. These theories live on places like Facebook and Twitter, but also in barbershops and bars, text messages, and group mess. I've seen them myself. I've seen mentions of simple solutions that would bring the government to its knees, ranging from mass worker strikes to refusing to pay taxes. Spoiler alert, this is a comfy dem who doesn't want the world to end tomorrow. This is a reasonable person trying to keep your pitchforks stowed safely away from his property. On with the story. They sound good, but what would actually happen if citizens used these avenues of resistance? To find out, I spoke to experts about the logistics of some of the more popular scenarios that have been tossed around. Would they work? What's required? And could they be effective? Or is there a path to the most resistance? I bet he asked CIA agents. I'm sure they would tell him the truth. Yes, sir, this is how the American people could overthrow their own government. Not paying taxes. 
Taxes are a favorite talking point in this regard and have become even more popular in light of recent reports that Donald Trump has, well, let's just say he's been creative with his personal tax payments. If enough Americans simply refuse to pay taxes, the thinking goes, then it would cripple the country's economy and create a viable form of community resistance. The problem is there are already millions of people who don't pay taxes. One out of every $6 Americans owe in taxes is unpaid. The amount of unpaid taxes is equal to 75% of the entire deficit every single year. So it would require a massive undertaking to coordinate the type of tax evasion it would take to create a tremor. One problem lies in the fact that money in general, and especially in the ways America uses it, is a made up notion. Well, he got that part right. The government can simply print more money, said Beth Logan, an enrolled agent at Coslog Tax Advisors in Chelmsford, Massachusetts. It would increase inflation and the deficit, but it's something the government can do. Overall, it's very hard for a W-2 employee to exempt themselves from paying taxes because they're already being taken out. It's out of the question for government workers. And if I don't file my taxes, I lose my license. And I'll just stop here and say explicitly what he's saying implicitly is that the government can just, the Fed that is, can just print as much money as it needs to to overcome the problem of people not paying their taxes. They don't need our taxes. So his conclusion is apt, which is, in short, there are just too many barriers to refusing to pay taxes. The government would start doling out liens before the system could ever get overloaded, creating a game of chicken in which individuals would risk losing everything for the slim chance that it financially impacts the country in any meaningful way. Now he's wrong about this one. A work strike. Earlier this year, we saw Amazon workers strike for a day as a means of getting the company's attention and raising awareness about the inhumane conditions the company's essential employees face on a given day. The plight of the everyday worker has only been highlighted during the pandemic. They've endured the worst of COVID-19 while those in charge have rolled in the dough, actually increasing their wealth and creating the largest wealth gap in American history. As a result, there has been a renewed interest in the idea of full, concerted, nationwide work stoppages. And I'll say here, I'll break in again and say that he's doing the devil's work with this next conclusion. He's trying to scare you the same way my union leaders try to scare us into not striking. If you haven't already figured it out, this guy is operating as controlled opposition, whether he means to or not. Back to the story. Again, we're looking at a game of chicken in which people with much fewer assets and resources are simply going to have to try to outlast huge corporations. And again, we run into a problem of coordination. I don't see a nationwide labor strike happening, says Russell Spears, an economist and professor at Clayton State University in Georgia. Russell is part of the PMC, just saying. People love their assets. We value what we can lose more than what we can gain. That is not a union guy, just saying. However, there are some vulnerable industries out there, especially when it comes to those in charge of the supply chain in this country. We've seen that airlines can't sustain long-term losses and railroad worker strikes have caused the government to intervene and negotiate. So there's some possibility of action in those sectors. Don't forget truck drivers and even teachers while we're here Teachers aren't part of the supply chain, but they keep all of the kids out of the parents' hair, those parents who still have hair. 
a general nationwide teacher strike would stop the economy just as fast as a general trucker strike. And if they ever got together, that's it. Game over. As for the big corporations, if you have your massive strikes from the Amazons and Apples and those top 1% of the firms, then we're going to have some problems, Spears says. Those are the types of companies keeping the money in our government. Apple has enough money to cover itself for three years, even if it doesn't sell another phone, adds Brian Hunt, another economics professor at Clayton State. So the vulnerability of companies depends on how big their war chests are. One thing to consider is that these strikes could simply force a move to automation and cost more jobs long term. That is an asshole. Clayton State, Brian Hunt, that is an asshole. Even though Apple has enough money to cover itself for three years, this is me talking, it doesn't have any way to keep its plants from being burnt to the ground. If they bring in the National Guard to protect the plants, then the National Guard's people might even get a clue and help us burn them down. This article doesn't go anywhere near far enough talking about what would happen with the National Guard coming in and other military and police, militarized police personnel coming in to try to stop things. If the workers are united, then those workers include military personnel and police personnel. So folks, you don't have to leave this country to get it solved. Other countries are fighting neoliberalism in similar ways. If you look around at the news, they don't want you to see. What have you seen in the news lately about the Yellow Vest movement? Leaving America. This is one of the more common considerations, just leaving the country. There's a lot of discussion about simply fleeing for greener pastures, but how possible is it? And this is me, how green are those pastures? Neoliberalism is squeezing people all over the world. We need to stick together, folks. Back to the story. As we see with many people trying to come into America over its history, those with the most means will have the most ability to travel. Those most impacted by an autocratic government are going to have the most difficult time picking up and starting in another country. You have to take into account what is the income, educational level, and skill set of the populace leaving, Hunt says. When you immigrate, you take your standard of living with you. Who even has the mobility to move? Even if we do have an ability to move, what is the target country's policy? How do we secure visas in, say, Canada for long-term living? The idea of picking up and leaving the country for a lot of people depends too much on a need for a level of financial security that far too many people, especially now, don't have. Now, for an individual, it might be more doable and make sense, but for enough of the population leaving to impact the country's bottom line, not likely. A civil uprising. The most common refrain in the call for resistance is for Americans to just simply storm the White House and send the president into exile like we've seen in other countries refusing to fall victim to coups and government takeovers. It's something we never thought we'd see in America, but it may yet happen. There's pretty good evidence that mass sustained protests in government have a good chance of ousting leaders in different countries, said Joe Wright, a political scientist at Pennsylvania State University who has done extensive work studying autocratic regimes. There isn't a reason to believe that couldn't happen in the United States, though there are obstacles here I'm not sure would be overcome. According to Wright, there are three essential characteristics of successful citizen uprisings the size of the uprising, its sustainability, and its commitment to nonviolence. 
The size and sustainability are hampered by the simple American geography. I can list places like Chile, Serbia, Sudan, and other countries, and many of those countries had a huge chunk of their populations already in the capital city, Wright says. You need about 5% to 10% of the population for this to be successful. That's 30 million people all converging on DC. The geography of the country just makes that really difficult. No, it doesn't. They just get in their cars and they come to DC. It's not that difficult. Now this point makes more sense. A key tenet of an uprising is the political leader's base defecting. That would mean the president's supporters turning on him as well, which, if any Fox News broadcast or QAnon post is any indication, seems unlikely. Now this is me again. I have to say that I understand his point about nonviolence, but I also saw what happened in 1968 with the civil rights movement. It was the property damage that really got people off the dime to enact the legislation of the civil rights movement. But I can still see the point of his conclusion here, which is, finally, a sustained nonviolent effort that garners more violent responses, like the one in front of St. John's Church this summer, where Trump used tear gas to disperse protesters for a photo op, could sway public opinion toward the side of resistance. If you can turn the tide of his supporters by showing this violence and one side using weapons, Wright says, you could see a shift in support. But I would say you could see a shift in support if the left armed itself and stormed DC with AR-15s. So even though, dear viewers and listeners, I've pointed out many flaws in this guy's logic, I do agree that the left and the right both would have to get pissed off at the same time for this to work. And for that reason, I suppose that a Biden presidency, which would quickly become a Harris presidency, might do more to bring about that unification than would Trump being reelected. I wish Joe Biden would address the real looting by Lauren Martinchek is therefore a good follow-up. A response to the Democratic nominee's comments on the unrest in Philadelphia following the death of Walter Wallace Jr. After video surfaced of Walter Wallace Jr. in the midst of a mental health crisis being shot by the police, the city of Philadelphia has dealt with protests and unrest in the nights that have followed the shooting. Breaking news. That breaking news first tonight, a man who investigators say was armed with a knife is shot dead by Philadelphia police. And tonight, that deadly encounter is sparking a demand for answers as protesters line the streets and some turn to vandalism, breaking glass and spray painting at this police precinct. And just into our newsroom, several officers are being taken to the hospital after being hit with bricks thrown by protesters at the 18th District. You're watching NBC 10 News at 11. I'm Jim Rosenfield. And I'm Jacqueline London. The shooting happened this afternoon at 61st and Locust Streets. That's in the city's Cobbs Creek neighborhood. NBC 10's Matt Delucia is live at police headquarters in Center City. Matt, what are you learning about this? Well, police tell me it was two officers who fired several shots at 27-year-old Walter Wallace this afternoon. Police say that he was waving a knife, and witnesses don't dispute that. His mother was even there trying to restrain him, but some argue that shooting him went too far. A witness sitting in a car started recording when the commotion began near 61st and Locust Streets. 
Philadelphia police say around 2.45, officers were called because of a domestic incident involving a man with a knife. We don't know what happened before the recording started, but in this video, you can hear the officers yell for others to back up and then to put the knife down. Officers ordered him several times to drop the weapon. Fortunately, he did not do so. Moments later, we hear several gunshots as the camera falls. We stopped the video due to the graphic content, but we could not see what happened at the moment of gunfire. Seconds later, the man's mother rushed over as witnesses tried to help the man as he laid on the ground. Family identified the man as Walter Wallace. People who know him say he loved his children and his family. He was a nice man, a wonderful man. Maurice Holloway watched the whole thing happen and helped officers put Walter in a police car to be rushed to the hospital. He believes it didn't have to end this way. I believe they could have took the right actions and possibly shoot him in his leg. Shoot him in his leg or not shoot him at all. Cops need psychological evaluations. The anger spread throughout the 6100 block of Locust. This right here yep. for a pocket knife is 15 shells laying down there. Several city leaders responded, including Police Commissioner Daniel Outlaw, who said in part, I recognize that the video of the incident raises many questions. Residents have my assurance that those questions will be fully addressed by the investigation. While at the scene this evening, I heard and felt the anger of the community. Everyone involved will forever be impacted. <laughs> Several videos like this one have been shared throughout the night. Fortunately, it appears that the officers were wearing body cameras. The body cameras were activated. So, um, you know, we should, have a, we should have a lot of video along with uh, eyewitness statements. When looking for a comment on the matter, a reporter asked Democratic nominee Joe Biden, what do you say to Philadelphia residents that are outraged by yet another unarmed black man shot by police? In response, Joe Biden said, what I say is there is no excuse whatsoever for the looting and the violence. None whatsoever. That's the first thing that came out of his mouth. I think to be able to protest is totally legitimate. It's totally reasonable. But I think that the looting is just as the victim's father said, do not do this. You're not helping. You're hurting. You're not helping my son. And there are certain things we're going to have to do as we move along, and that is how we deal with how you diminish the prospect of lethal shooting in circumstances like the one we saw. Yeah, because they're going to shoot you if you loot. You loot, we shoot. That's going to be part of the commission I set up to determine how we deal with these dot dot dot, but there's no excuse for the looting. In a comment where he didn't even mention the victim's name, Joe Biden had the unmitigated gall to quote his father in an attempt to get them to stop the unrest, as opposed to offering words of comfort and attempted understanding for a grieving family and city as the reporter had looked for. Personally, I can't say I'm surprised at all. That's the thing with Biden. He just can't help himself. While Joe Biden seems to be expressing more concern with property damage and appearing tough on crime than he is about the life of Walter Wallace Jr., I can't help wishing he would take the time to address the real looting that's been taking place in the United States for decades. Between the years 1974 through 2018, $50 trillion worth of wealth was stolen from the bottom 90% by the very richest among us. 
I find it telling, to say the least, that Mr. Biden is expressing more outrage about people running out of stores with a television than he ever showed in regards to tens of millions of people being out of work, slipping into poverty, and on the precipice of losing their homes, while billionaires have seen astronomical increases to their wealth as a direct result of the very same crisis that cost millions of jobs. Maybe it's just me, but I could not possibly care less about people running out of a Walmart with an armful of goods. Given the haste of his response, it felt as though he couldn't wait to be given the opportunity to lecture the city of Philadelphia's unrest. It felt as though he couldn't wait to remind the public of just how tough on crime he was and would continue to be. But I can't help wondering if he even meant any of it. Would it really be surprising to learn that a consultant had insisted that it would be in his best interest politically to come out strongly against the looting, even though the reporter appeared to only be looking to hear what he had to say to a city that mourns? As I've said before, I'm trying very hard to keep things in perspective. I've been doing my best to bite back my anger for the next few days as the election between Donald Trump and Joe Biden approaches and always keep in mind who it is I would rather fight. But there are some things that I cannot bring myself to ignore, and this was one of them. Evidently, polling seems to suggest that keeping Biden out of the limelight for the majority of the election has been a relatively good strategy. They should go back to it. One of my students is from Philadelphia, and he wrote in his journal about this this weekend. I'm not going to read you his journal, but his concern about his own city is poignant and moving, but also... This is part of a bigger movement that's happening in lots of cities. And what I've said before is that I hope people realize the root cause of the problem and they address that with the protests and the looting and the property damage. We need to understand the system that needs to be dismantled and we need to understand who the people are who put that system in place.